In the beginning, we were created and designed to live and walk with God. But humanity traded the truth for a lie. We traded the glory and goodness of God for the world and our own ways. Separated from God, we were stuck in a pit of our own making. But Jesus broke through. Through His death on the cross and His resurrection, He rescued us from our sin, shame, and pain. Jesus shows us and teaches us how to live a new life, full life, a life that is upside down compared to what we are used to. His upside down, or rather, right side up ways are beautiful and perfect. He empowers us to live His mission, turning this upside down world right side up for His kingdom, His power, and His glory. This past week, I came across an article entitled, Tips on Love from Those Who Should Know, where kids between the ages of five and 10 were asked to respond to the following questions about love and marriage. Question, first question, why does love happen between two particular people? Cassidy, age nine, says, no one is sure quite why it happens but it has something to do with how you smell. (laughs) So keep deodorant on those shopping lists, ladies and gentlemen. What do most people do on a date? Michael, age 10, says, on the first date, they tell each other lies. (laughs) And that usually gets them interested enough to go on a second date. (laughs) Smart kid. What is the proper age to get married? Hosea, age five, says, once I'm done with kindergarten, I'm going to find a wife. (laughs) Again, to the question, what's the proper age to get married? Judy, age eight, responds, 84. (laughs) Because at that age, you don't have to work anymore, and you can spend all your time loving each other in your bedroom. Because that's what married people do all day, right? That's what it's all about. (laughs) Moving on. So today, Jesus, he's going to give us uh, more than just some tips on love and marriage, but you could say his direction for God's design from the one who designed love and marriage in the first place. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 uh, here today, where we find uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which we affectionately refer to around here as the best sermon ever, Uh, where in the midst of this particular section of sermon, Jesus, he is going through a series of teachings where he is prefacing with the statement, you've heard it said, but then follows up by saying, but I say to you. 
And so the religious leaders of the day, they have been saying how it's all about the external, external physical behaviors. And Jesus, he says, no, no, no. Everything that happens on the outside is ultimately a reflection of what's actually going on on the inside, inside your heart. And so over the last several weeks, we've looked at how uh, the religious leaders of the day and how Jesus said, hey, you've heard it said, you know, don't break your commitments, your oaths, and don't murder, of course, and don't commit adultery. Yes, do not do these things. But I say to you, Jesus says, that every one of those physical behaviors is a reflection of something going on in the heart. And so he says, I say to you, watch out for your integrity and watch out for unhealthy bitterness and anger and watch out for lustful intent in your heart. Uh, and that we covered that last week as we are in the midst of uh, a three-week series of difficult topics within this greater series. We, last week, we talked about the topic of lust. Uh, next week, we'll be taking on uh, the subject of LGBTQIA+. And today, we are looking at what Jesus has to say about divorce and remarriage. Uh, and so we're going to pick up those teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to follow with me, starting in verse 31. Jesus says, as he has been, it has been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, Jesus says, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I know what some of you are saying in this moment. You're saying, Pastor, please tell me this is the part where you tell me that this does not mean what it seems to say that it means. And I cannot do that. And I want to encourage you, here's why I don't have to do that. Because last week we introduced uh, this reality that within difficult teachings of Scripture, that there are these three truths. There's actually lots of truths, but we zeroed in on three truths. Uh, that when it comes to any topic that we encounter, tough or seemingly easy, that what is always true behind all of them is one, Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Romans 2, 4, it's actually God's kindness, his goodness, his best for us that leads to Holy Spirit conviction uh, for us to repent. It's his kindness that leads to repentance, which that word means to change our mind. With then, As we change our mind from our ways to trusting God's ways, we then naturally, out of the overflow of that, the inside out, change our direction and the behaviors that go with that follow. Because, third, John 10.10. 10. This third pillar, we have this three-legged stool that we can firmly plant on this reality that we actually believe that while the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus has come that we may have life and life to the full, that Jesus, the giver of life, gives us the best way to live that life. And that that is true for every single one of us, whether you are here as a single person, a married person, a divorced person, or a remarried person. And so that's the good news. But naturally, to discover that, we have, you might say, some follow-up questions to Jesus' teachings. We have some follow-up questions about this particular passage and what Jesus has to say. 
And let me say this, when it comes to this or really any uh, passage that seems like we have follow-up questions to, that when we have questions of uh, a particular scripture or a passage in the Bible, that the best way, the best way to understand the Bible, really, you could say, is to let the Bible be commentary for itself. Meaning that when there is a passage, such as today, on divorce and remarriage, we should ask, does the Bible speak to this subject? Does, does Jesus talk about divorce and remarriage in any other spot in the Bible? Which we do find. And so that's how we're going to approach our time today with this question and this subject. Because I, you, like, again, we have questions. And these aren't just like theoretical, hypothetical questions. But it's like, you're talking about my life kinds of questions. Questions like, okay, well, when is divorce permitted? Or is it ever okay as a divorced person to remarry? Or some of you here today might say, hey, I'm divorced and remarried. Like, where am I at? What do I do? Or today you might say, I'm single. I'm divorced and single. What do I do? Or I've never been married, but I'd, I'd like to be. Or maybe you'd say, hey, I'm single, never been married, and would like to stay that way. So what does this sermon even have to do with me? And so we're just going to take these questions on, uh, again, letting the scriptures interpret the scriptures. And we're going to start that with uh, uh, some other teaching from Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. We're going to hang out there for a while, so you're welcome to turn there if you have a Bible of your own or the um, passage will be on the screen. But what Jesus is, he's actually being asked directly in this setting like about this particular topic about divorce and remarriage. And so he expands on his Sermon on the Mount teaching here in Matthew 19, where the setting goes down like this. In verse three, it says that some Pharisees, they came to him to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, the Pharisees are essentially asking Jesus, okay, Jesus, from your perspective, how does divorce work? To which Jesus says, as you're going to see, time out. Like, you're actually asking the wrong question. That before we can even address the subject of divorce, we need to first talk about the meaning of marriage. And so Jesus responds to them. He says, haven't you read? And if you could just kind of catch the first century insult that's going on here. Uh, I mean, he is talking, think about it, to a bunch of professional Bible readers saying, haven't you all read your Bible? It would be like going to like the head coach of like the Chiefs or the Eagles today and be like, before the Super Bowl, like, have you not read your playbook? Like, this is like a dig here that Jesus is doing. So haven't you read, you professional Bible readers, your Bible where it says that in the beginning, the creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united. Will be united. That, that understanding is based in what we would call a covenant commitment together. This covenant, this God-level commitment one to another before one another and before God, where God is in the midst of it. That a covenant is so much more than what we might typically use in our day, like, like a contract. A covenant, a marriage is a covenant, it is not a contract. Because the problem with a contract is when you think about a contract, it's not rooted in what marriage is, uh, as we learn to be, a self-giving, a self-sacrificing kind of love. As you think about, again, think about your, your contract with your cell phone carrier. Like, has anyone here ever fallen in love with AT&T? 
or Verizon or whoever it may be. No. Like, if they do, like, everything that they are supposed to do, like, you are at best benignly okay with them. The only relationship you have with them is based on them meeting your expectations based on the contract that they provide you with what you want. And you see, with a contractual mindset, even if you wouldn't say it, if you have this contractual mindset, uh, like if I do my part, you do your part, and if you're not doing your part, I'm not gonna do my part, approach to marriage, then the only thing that you could ever even hope for your marriage to measure up to is that the other person will, at best, maybe work their way up to meeting your expectations. But a covenant, a covenant says, for richer or for poorer. It says, in sickness and in health. A covenant says for better or for worse. I commit, I covenant to love you. That's what marriage is. That's what, why Jesus says, for this reason, a man literally leaves the family he was born into and he is united with his new family, with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one. In other words, in God's economy, one plus one equals one. Like, you become one. There are no longer two. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In other words, don't unone what God has made one. Don't unone what God has made one. And so the Pharisees, they, they respond to Jesus in this teaching about marriage. And they say, okay, well, now, why then, verse 7, did Moses, and they're referencing Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24, that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, Jesus replies, no. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. You see, Jesus, he is speaking into their broken system. He is speaking into their, you've heard it said because frankly, you are the ones who have been doing and saying it all wrong because it was not this way from the beginning. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He is saying Moses never commanded anyone to get divorced. But what he did is he made a concession because in that day there was a really a whirlwind of divorces taking place with men divorcing their wives for any and every reason. In fact, that's the question uh, that's being answered. Can we divorce for any and every reason? And, and so Moses, he required men in that day to write a certificate of divorce where divorce had taken place uh, that says essentially that these women, they have not been unfaithful. They still have rights. They can still do business. Uh, it was a terrible time for women uh, in that day. And it's awful, uh, but relative to that, it was never required for Moses to command divorce in any situation. But where there was divorce, a certificate as a means of protection against these mistreated women was to be put in place. And so no, it's because your hardness of heart, Jesus says, that you have contorted the law to get what you want rather than pursue what God's ways are. But I tell you, Jesus says, it was not this way. It was not this way from the beginning. And so from there, Jesus, he, he does go on to give understanding uh, to the question at hand. As we see in the Sermon on the Mount, we see uh, a similar reflection here in verse nine where Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. 
You see, during these times when the Pharisees uh, are, are at play, like they are, they're quizzing Jesus. You can see they come to test him, it says at the beginning of this. And they're testing to see where Jesus stands on what were two dominant uh, rabbinical, pharisaical schools of thought on the matter of divorce. That there was the school of Shema that allowed for divorce for only of reasons of sexual immorality. But then there was also like a more liberal school, the school of Hillel, uh, which allowed to, again, their interpretation of that mosaic stipulation was that indecency could be interpreted as any cause. In fact, that's where that idea comes from, was actually called any cause divorce. They're asking Jesus, what do you feel about any cause divorce? And what any cause meant was about as any cause as you could imagine. Like it was literally anything that the man found unpleasing about his wife, he could divorce her for any cause if that's what he concluded. And so literally, they had a list. And on the list, like, like literally, burnt fish and burnt toast were on the list. Like a lot of y'all's marriages would be in trouble, right? Uh, another thing on the list, visible wrinkles. Wrinkles. Like, if your wife developed a wrinkle on her face that she did not have on her face on her wedding day, according to the rabbinical school of Hillel, that was grounds for divorce. Like, how crazy is that? Like, literally aging. Like, congratulations, you lived another day. The only problem is, with that, you developed a wrinkle that I don't so much like. And it's like, this any, like how is this even going on? I'll tell you, I'd be in trouble. Uh, because as I am aging, I'm starting to show some wear and tear pushing over the, uh, the 40 limit. And one of those things that I've uh, kind of this on again, off again, is some like some of you guys or ladies maybe know, like kind of that lower bulging disc stuff, some back things. And so when that flares up uh, with, you know, some regularity, I have trouble like literally even bending over to put on my shoes. And so to help me with this, I picked up one of these handy dandies. <laughs> It is not a crowbar, um, as security asked me about when I walked into church last night with it. Uh, it is actually a shoehorn, uh, but it's not just any shoehorn. It is a two-foot-long shoehorn, which I'll demonstrate for you. Without bending over, I'm able to slip my foot in there just like so. No bending, and just like that. Thank you for not clapping. That happened last night, and I felt really weird about it. It's like a participation trophy. And so anyway, I'm, I'm out in the garage, and I'm, I'm putting this thing, uh, you know, to work. And at the same time that I'm putting my shoes on with my two-foot-long uh, old man back uh, shoehorn, my wife, Jessica, walks out into the garage. And I feel like I was kind of caught. I don't know what to do. And she stops, and she looks me up and down, and not in like the you're so attractive kind of way. And she looks at me and she says, and I quote, that's hot. <laughs> Look, the reality is, if you are looking for a reason for divorce, I'll tell you, then you will find as many reasons as you want to find. You see, what Jesus is revealing, that if your crosshairs, if your question is all about getting after the divorce, then you are sunk before you even start. You're aiming in the wrong direction because it was not this way from the beginning and you're beginning the conversation with the wrong question. And so Jesus, he says this to the Pharisees. He's like, you guys, you got this thing all upside down. 
God's original design for marriage was one man and one woman that would reflect a covenant, one another relationship that reflects and points to, actually, this is the meaning of marriage. We don't have time to get into it all today, but reflects God's covenant love nature with us as his church. That throughout the scriptures, that marriage is meant to put on display as a witness, as salt and light, as he says later in, or excuse me, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, a representative of how God loves us. That's what our goal is and our meaning in in our marriage to reflect the love that Jesus has for us. Sacrificial, self-giving, covenant love rather than a contract. And so Jesus, he lays this out for the Pharisees as they seek out to test him. But at the same time, his disciples, they are there as well. And so his disciples, hearing and listening to what Jesus is teaching, they respond, verse 10, they say to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. To which I think Jesus is like, yes, like you're getting it. You're getting that you should not walk into marriage lightly, just thinking, hey, if it doesn't work out, I'll just write a certificate of divorce and you know, just find another fish in the sea who doesn't burn my fish for dinner. And so Jesus, he replies, yes, take this very seriously, but not everyone can accept this word, but only to those whom it has been given. And so what Jesus goes on to talk about from here is uh, these things called eunuchs. And to, without getting into all of it, essentially Jesus is talking about singleness. He goes on to talk about uh, being able to, you know, whether you're single, you know, because of it's your choice or single because of something happened to you, he talks about. Uh, or maybe it's single because you specifically feel like this is something that God has led you in, uh, as the Apostle Paul would later even say, actually something you could be gifted in. That for whatever season of life that you're in, or maybe you see it as your whole life, that if you could say single is the box that you check on your tax forms, uh, Jesus, and later Paul, who was also single, encourages and challenges those who are single to leverage those unique freedoms of being single to not, he says, indulge the flesh. Don't use your singleness to indulge the flesh. But Paul would later say to live a life of love of Christ for others to further God's kingdom here on earth. That that's a unique opportunity in that stage of life. And so, to some of the questions that we have of all of this, we would ask, okay, for clarity, when is it okay to get a divorce? Well, according to Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount, and later, Matthew 19, when Jesus is questioned directly, Jesus says, in the case of adultery, in the case of sexual Immorality, that if your spouse cheats on you, that it is so damaging that Jesus concedes, he doesn't command, but he concedes that you may walk away from that covenant because the damage it causes to the designed oneness of your marriage is so great. But it's important that you realize that Jesus doesn't command, but concedes divorce in this particular circumstance, particularly if it is unrepentant, continued sexual immorality. However, with this being true, and again, I, I want to say this, I said this last week, that I don't even pretend to stand here before you as someone who understands what it is that it would be like to go through that in your marriage. That if this is something that has been a part of your story, like, I can empathize, but I, I, can't, I cannot even begin to imagine the pain and the hurt that this would cause. And so I have to put that big asterisk by everything I'm saying here. But I would contend I would contend that as a Christ follower, divorce should not be your first go-to response, but where possible, 
understood as your last resort. You see, divorce, it's like an amputation. Uh, like, if you were to, like, break your leg severely, like, the first response is not to lose the leg, uh, but only to do that if it was necessary in order to save the entire body. And here's why. Ephesians chapter 5. It says, husbands, again, you're getting back to the meaning of marriage. Husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church. And so how many times has, you could say, we as the church been unfaithful to God's will and ways? Countless. And yet, God has never broken his covenant with us. And so to borrow a line from Jesus, in another setting, actually just a few verses later in chapter 19, uh, against seemingly impossible odds, Jesus says, when it comes to these difficult and impossible situations, yes, with man, this is impossible. To bring together a seemingly beyond repair, completely broken marriage, humanly speaking, impossible. But with God, all things are possible. All things are possible by the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead that is at work within us. It's only by that power are these things possible with God. I've seen it done. And some of you are here still married today because this is true. But again, there are biblical grounds for divorce and adultery is certainly one of them. And that may be your only option, but let it not be your first option. A second case for, um, or grounds for divorce, biblical divorce, it would be abandonment. Abandonment. In 1 Corinthians 7, um, we see the Apostle Paul, he's giving a lot of direction uh, from God on his design for singleness and marriage, as well as dealing with divorce. Uh, but along with that, he actually gives some of his own personal pro tips, which I think is funny. If you read it, he's like, hey, God says to do this. But then on the side, he's like, well, this isn't God. This is just kind of how I would do it. Uh, so it's kind of funny. You have to follow it, uh, the back and forth, just a little bit here. But with that, one of the things that uh, the Apostle Paul says, uh, and what you're going to see is like, Paul was actually a pretty big fan of singleness. As a single man, obviously Jesus was a single man uh, because of this unique opportunity without the responsibilities of you know, a spouse and a family to keep up with, you have some you know, more opportunities. Amen, fellas? I'm just kidding, you better not, don't do that. Okay. <laughs> Paul, as a single man, he says, I wish that all of you were single as I am. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, I have never heard these verses read at a wedding. <laughs> I mean, we've got, we've got Ted. He's going to marry Nancy. Ted was going to be single, but he burned with passion, so he picked her. <laughs> How romantic. And so what's happening here is in the city of Corinth, there is the Corinthian church that Paul is writing to, and the city outside of it is like this pagan, most hedonistic city you could possibly imagine, where the gospel of Jesus shows up, and people are giving their lives to Jesus, and there's following Jesus, but within that, there are situations in marriages where one spouse has become a Christian, and the other is an unbeliever, and the unbeliever is like, 
I didn't sign up for this. I'm not bound by Jesus' way. I'm gonna continue to do things my way, the way I want to, and they, they bail on the marriage. They say, I'm out. Uh, to which Paul says this, that when this happens, he says, when someone leaves, when an unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. In other words, if the spouse chooses to abandon you, you can't stop them. And in the case of abandonment, there is a concession for you to get divorced. Then from there, the third grounds for divorce would be abuse. Adultery, abandonment, abuse. Now let me just be very clear that if you are being abused, that if your children are being abused, then you need to get out. You need to call the authorities, you need to call us here at the church so that we can walk through this with you. But in short, if your spouse is abusing you, they are acting like an unbeliever. They are abandoning you. And divorce is certainly an option, but separation is for sure an immediate must. And so, biblically speaking, when is it okay to get divorced? Adultery, abandonment, abuse. Now, if you're here today and you say, uh, I'm a divorced person and I'm single, or I've actually never been married and I'm single, like, like what do I do? Well, I would say number one, first and foremost, lean into the only relationship that will ever complete you, Jesus Christ. You see, in our, not so much in our culture anymore, but maybe even within the church culture, I'll say, we have so idolized marriage as like this pinnacle relational understanding of what a relationship fulfillment is all about. And when we idolize marriage, when we take it, uh, you could say this small, make it, a, we would call it a small G God, an idol, uh, above the one true God, the capital G God, that you could say as a single person, you risk rushing into a marriage uh, with what might otherwise be an already unwise or unhealthy dating relationship. Or I would say this, even as a married person, if you idolize some understanding of what you think marriage is, maybe this contractual uh, ability to meet some need and satisfaction for you, then you're tempted, I would say, to go all rabbinical school of Hillel to trade your spouse in for some type of new and improved model that might satisfy. Uh, because you miss that the point of marriage is to reflect God's sacrificial perfect love for us, that we are to put that sacrificial love on display. And then relational satisfaction and fulfillment, that's, uh, we hope, obviously a byproduct, but at best a byproduct. But that is not the meaning of our marriage. You see, the biggest lie that has ever been told on a Hollywood screen is from Renee Zellweger to Tom Cruise. You complete me. No human will ever complete you. No other person on the planet can or should even be expected to carry the weight of that expectation because as soon as you do, it's the guarantee that that will completely fall out beneath itself. Only Jesus can. And so Paul in Corinthians, he's teaching, he's reminding us uh, here in other places that if you are single and lonely, or, or if you are married and lonely, if you're married and happy or married and miserable, if you're single for a reason or single for a season, as the saying goes, that the power 
And the peace available to us, as it says in Philippians 4.11, is in being content. It says to find contentment, Paul says, in any and every circumstance and every season and stage of life. To discover in Christ a contentment, whether you're single, in Christ a contentment, whether you're married, because neither define you. Neither define you. Only Jesus should ultimately define us. And so biblically, uh, upon finding contentment in Jesus and getting into a healthy place there, uh, biblically, can I get remarried if I am divorced? And I will say, based on the study that I've done, where God allows for divorce, he also allows for remarriage. That we see cover to cover in the scriptures that where God allows for divorce, he also allows for remarriage. And as I sought out to discover what the Bible says on the subject of divorce and remarriage, I came across a book, uh, oh so creatively titled, What the Bible Says About Divorce and Remarriage by Dr. Wayne Grudem. And it's uh, one of the resources that are available at the website associated with the sermon series, thebestsermonever.com, this, and a number of other things uh, to kind of help you kind of maybe go off on a different direction uh, based on the number of topics that we're looking at today that we obviously can't cover in a few minutes together. And so I'd encourage you to take advantage of those resources. Uh, But to the question, like, should you? Like, should you... In your specific situation, should you get remarried? Well, the problem with answering that in a sermon is there are like literally like hundreds of people that are listening to this sermon. And with that, just as many hundreds of different unique situations at play as well. And that maybe you were divorced for biblical reasons, but there might be other reasons uh, that you should remain single or pursue singleness. But again, I would say that the number one thing we all must do is lean into our relationship with Jesus. For you, that if you are divorced, that you would find the necessary healing over time, that you would find contentment in your relationship with Jesus before moving on too quickly. And even as I say that, like, I'm not suggesting that it's just like you and Jesus in a corner somewhere. Like, we're in this together. Like, that's what the whole church was designed for. Uh, That's why our mission, you know, as we say, we're going to be developed into devoted followers of Jesus Christ, comma, by growing and serving together, that we do this together, building relationships one with another, married people, single people, all of us together, that encourages the whole point, our ultimate devotion and relationship with Jesus. And so that's what we do together. But I recognize with that, some of you are still asking, okay, I'm here and I am divorced, and I am remarried. So where do I stand? What do I do? What about us? Well, with all of this, we must recognize that wherever there is divorce, again, whether for biblical or unbiblical reasons, that wherever there was divorce or is divorce, sin was involved. That obviously, if you were the one sinned against, the one cheated on, the one abandoned, the one abused, again, I have no idea what it would be like to go through those things. Um, But I would say that perhaps on the other side of that, if that's where you are, maybe you too need to figure out what it looks like to trust Jesus in your own temptations and maybe even your own sin. Because again, we recognize the domino effect that this caused, that maybe even as you were sinned against, you are struggling with responding in that, what we talked about a few weeks ago, 
that contempt level, anger, unforgiveness, maybe even as Jesus talks about later, wanting revenge, an eye for an eye. Uh, and, and you might say, why in the world would I ever forgive them for what they did to me? And the only answer I can give you on that is our third pillar. Because you believe Jesus. Like you actually believe that the life he is leading you to not live in unforgiveness, but to step into forgiveness is the best way possible. That Jesus is so bold, he'll say later in the Sermon on the Mount that you can actually love and pray for your enemies. And how often do we recognize that in these situations our greatest enemy are those who was once maybe the closest to us of all. But here's why that's true. And this was a super helpful understanding to me when it came to the idea of forgiveness and the reality and the power of what's happening when that happens. That when we forgive, that when we forgive, you could say we set the captive free and we realize that the captive being set free is not actually the other person, but us. Because when we forgive, regardless of what they, what they do, that, that bitterness, that contempt, that's not hurting them, it's only hurting us. And so it sets us free from what's been holding us captive in resentment and unforgiveness so that we can experience the forgiveness that comes ultimately, number one, by the grace of Jesus Christ that is the only thing that can empower us to forgive and let go for our own setting free. And so, again, wherever sin is involved. Wherever you can, you, you know, you can only control you. Confess, repent, be honest with God and yourself about where you need forgiveness and a new direction, a repentance by the power of the Holy Spirit. We all still need the grace of Jesus to cover all of it. And to some of you here, you might be like, you know, a large part of the sermon, you're like, hey, look, I'm not divorced or remarried. Like, like I'm not even sure the sermon applies to me. Well, I would caution you. Because that's where the Pharisees got in trouble. They thought about all the things of the heart that didn't apply to them because they didn't do the things that were physically wrong. But at the heart level, do not forget, we are all guilty. We are all Romans 3. We have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. In fact, to some degree, the whole Sermon on the Mount is really just kind of a grand adventure in us discovering all the ways in which we fall short. Uh, whether, again, in our marriages, or maybe it's adultery in our hearts, or the integrity and the commitments that we break, uh, we fall short. Or maybe it's what we've left undone in our responsibility to be, as Jesus says, salt and light to the world around us. Or even way back to week one of this, when we talked about the Beatitudes, and how uh, this idea of, like, we're to be pure of heart. Like, over the last six weeks, has anyone cracked the code and achieved Pureness of heart. Yeah, no, we are all sinful. We all fall short. And so we recognize that even as God lays out his best way of life, that by the power of his Holy Spirit we pursue, we also recognize we will fall short. But thanks be to God, Jesus didn't and Jesus doesn't. His grace covers it all. And so with that, sorry, back to the question at hand. Regarding your second marriage. Nowhere does the scripture say or suggest in any way that breaking your second covenant does anything to help the first one. So whoever you are married to this day, 
God is calling you to the same vow you made on that wedding day from this day forward to love and to sacrifice one for another to put on display Jesus' sacrifice and his love for his church in the way that we live out our marriage. You know, and as we kind of wrap all this up, one of the things that I'm just so thankful for that we have in Jesus, uh, that as he came to earth, not just to teach us, but to show us the way that everything that he teaches personally in the Sermon on the Mount, he perfectly lived out in every interaction that he had. One of my favorites is in John chapter four. Uh, It's known as the story of the woman at the well. In fact, when I was doing student ministry here, we actually named our entire ministry the well based on this story where Jesus encounters this woman at the well and they get talking about water and Jesus is saying, hey, if you drink from this well, this well water, you'll be thirsty again. But I have living water that will well up into eternal life where you will never thirst again to which this obviously has the woman's attention, which turns into Jesus inviting her to go and get her husband, to which she responds, actually, I don't have a husband, to which Jesus lovingly acknowledges and identifies what she already knows is true in her life, saying, I know. I know that you have had five husbands, and I know that the man you are living with now is not your husband. And so clearly, when it comes to all the things we've been talking about today, this is a difficult story in this woman's life when it comes to adultery and marriage and divorce and remarriage, all of it, to which you could say, instead of avoiding the toughest stuff in her life, Jesus says, actually, that's why I'm here. That's, that's why I came. Like, in fact, go and get Bring to me your toughest situation. Bring to me the thing that you are most embarrassed about. Bring to me the thing, the area that you need the most help. Bring that situation to me where Jesus then responds with truth, full of love and full of grace with the three pillars of truth we've talked about. No condemnation, only forgiveness. That it's his kindness to her that leads her to Repentance to turn away from the sin and the situation that she is in to experience living water, to experience life and life to the full that wells up into eternal life. And so friends, may we be reminded that the teachings of Jesus that he gave while on earth and the personal interactions he had while on earth that reflected those perfect teachings is still perfectly available to you and to me 2,000 years later this day. That the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead by his grace is working inside of us. So with that, would you pray with me, giving thanks. Father, you are so good. You have given us your son who showed us that in him, because of his perfect sacrifice, that we have no condemnation, that kindness that you would send your one and only son leads us to turn away and repent of your not best for us that we have been sucked into. And so we turn towards you as we move forward in living life and life to the full that you have given us by the power of your Holy Spirit at work within each and every one of us. May it be, amen.